All right. Well, for a few years now, there's been a photo floating around the internet and on social media. And this photo has three lines of text. Line one, let's eat, comma, grandma. Line two, let's eat grandma, no comma. Line three, grammar saves lives. It's a funny meme, it brings about a chuckle, but it really does bring home an important point, that grammar matters, syntax matters, even punctuation matters, word arrangements matter, because the moment you move a word here or move a word there, or you add or drop a comma here or there, suddenly the meaning of what you'd originally intended to convey has completely changed. Words have weight. Grammar can, in fact, save lives. Now, we're going to see that, we do see that grammar saves lives, you could say, in Scripture. Not saving lives in the sense of preventing grandma from being cannibalized, but in the sense of a pilgrim's posture toward God changing, his attitude shifting, his thoughts redirecting. You know, think of the book of Habakkuk. After grieving the sins of his people, after lamenting the sins of his people, after complaining to God about the sins of his people, after accusing God of not listening to him about the sins of his people, that's Habakkuk 1-2. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? At the end of that book, Habakkuk's perspective entirely shifts and it hinges on a tiny little word. Yet. In Habakkuk 3.18 we see that word yet. And that prophet's perspective completely shifts in that book. Here's the whole passage in context. Habakkuk three sixteen through 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit in the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds' feet and makes me walk on my high places. We see the usage of grammar in Scripture causing a shift not only in God's people, though, but rather, you could say, in God himself, as his countenance toward his people shifts, as his attitude shifts, as his course reverses. Take these just for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 and 27 says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Or 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, No temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with a temptation, will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Or 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. Romans 5, 6 and 8, 6 through 8. For why we were still yet helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One more. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, in the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen. Amen.
Amen. But, but, but. As Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, praise God for the buts of the Bible. All this to say, grammar matters. Syntax matters. Because with just a few strokes of a pen, or maybe today, or maybe back in the old days, a stylus, right down to that jot and tittle, incredibly important words, indeed life-altering words, indeed life-saving words, might be communicated. And we want to make sure that we're not missing any of them. That's what we have going on in our passage for tonight. We have this grammatically driven turn of events, this syntactical turning point. And with that riveting introduction about a syntactical turning point, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Hosea. Now, in case you're new to this series, and even if you're not new to this series, simply to give you a sense of background, the major theme that we've flagged in the book of Hosea is God's faithful covenant love toward Israel. Israel, the ten northern tribes, as a people and as a nation, they were, they were spiritually adulterous. And they were not only drifting from their spiritual husband, Yahweh, they were actively pursuing other gods. As older translations render it, they were whoring after other gods. God, though a holy God, who cannot and will not tolerate wickedness and evil in his presence, is also a patient God, also a long-suffering God, also a merciful God, also a faithful covenant-keeping God. So the major theme of Hosea, as we're going to see week over week for the many weeks to come, is faithless Israel and her faithful God. Structurally, what we see in this book are two major divisions, which I've mentioned before. In Hosea chapters 4 through 14, we see the back and the forth between God and Israel over Israel's apostasy and spiritual whoredom. And then in chapters 1 through 3, where we're still tonight, we see God's dealings with Israel being typified or illustrated in this real earthly marriage relationship between God's prophet, Hosea, and his wife, the unfortunately named Gomer. Now, in terms of the terrain that we've covered so far, we're still in Hosea chapter 1. We've seen in verse 1 of chapter 1, the word of the Lord coming to Hosea, which based on the listing of the kings mentioned in that verse, would place the dating of this book when Hosea receives that word from the Lord sometime in the mid-800s BC, approximately 750 years before the birth of Christ. We've seen in verse 2 of chapter 1 that God commanded Hosea to go take to yourself, God said, a wife of harlotry and to have children of harlotry. And though that might seem bizarre to us, God's command was not out of left field. It was not random or purposeless. Rather, this same verse, verse 2, is the verse in which we see why God gave Hosea this command to take this harlot, to take this prostitute for his wife. Because it was an object lesson for the people of Israel. That's what we see at the end of verse 2. Go take yourself a wife of harlotry, have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. Israel did so by shacking up with other lovers. Namely, the false gods and idols of the various people groups in the surrounding region. We've seen in verse 3, we saw this last week, that Hosea's obedience was immediate. Surely the command that Hosea received was a difficult pill to swallow, not an easy pill to swallow, as a appointed and set-apart prophet of the Lord. Marry a prostitute? Me? To her? Really? It didn't matter to Hosea. The text tells us that he immediately followed the Lord's command. It says, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium. No complaining, no delaying, simply obeying. So he went. And then last week in verses 3 through 9, we saw that Gomer, Hosea's wife, the prostitute, gave birth to three children. Only one of those children was Hosea's, the firstborn, Jezreel. As for the other two, Hosea's father is left more ambiguous in the text, which is, I would say, strong evidence that especially in light of Gomer's harlotry, The latter two children were not Hosea's, but instead were the product of her adultery. Um, Of Jezreel, the first child, the firstborn son, we know that his name literally means God sows. 
But we also know that by the time of Hosea, that name Jezreel had become more synonymous with bloodshed. In light of all the bloodshed that had been shed in the valley of Jezreel in the days of Gideon and later Jehu. We also know that this little boy's name, Jezreel, was tied into the fact that God was about to judge Israel by scattering them. Look at Hosea 1.4. I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, God says, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Not only that, in verse 5 he says, on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then we get to the second child, Lo Ruhamah, in verses 6 and 7 which we saw last week means no mercy or no compassion. Earlier in the days of Moses, God had declared that he was the Lord, the Lord God. This is Exodus chapter 34. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But now that same God was telling Israel through Hosea's naming of this little girl, Lo Ruhamah, not anymore. In light of their wickedness, in light of their spiritual adultery, in light of their apostasy, God was no longer going to demonstrate his loving kindness, his tenderheartedness, or his patience to Israel. They could no longer find rest in the truths they knew about God's nature and his character. And then we get to the third child in Hosea 1.9, where God says, Name him, a son, Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And that's a troubling and terrifying name, as we saw last week, because those are troubling and terrifying words. As we saw last week, there were many places in the Old Testament where God not only set his love on his people, but where he affirmatively told them that they were his people and that he was their God. But now God is saying to the people of Israel, not anymore. You can no longer rest in or upon your identity as the people of Israel. He's saying to them, I've warned you over and over about your sinful and wicked and adulterous ways. I've had enough. I'm done with you. You are no longer my people, and I am no longer your God. I've cut you off. You're on your own. That's where we left off last week. Hosea 1.9, the naming of the three children, and the judgment on Israel that the naming of those three children would portend. But I also gave you a little bit of a teaser before we ended last week when I read the very first word of verse 10. Yet. One of those small, seemingly insignificant grammatical terms. Just like yet in Habakkuk 3.18, just like but in Ephesians chapter 2. But as we're going to see, this little word isn't grammatically insignificant at all. It actually carries a tremendous amount of weight. We're going to pick it up in Hosea 1.10 right now. We're also going to cover 1.10, 1.11, and Hosea 2.1. Those three verses in the original Hebrew text are one paragraph, one unit. So with all that as background, let's look at our text for tonight. Hosea 1.10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama. There's a lot to cover in just those three verses, so let's get right into it. And as we work through these three verses, I'm not going to give you three cute alliterated preaching points, but I, I do want to highlight for you a few different things that we see happening. First, we're going to see God promising a future restoration of his people. We're going to see God providing a renewal of certain promises to his people. I guess this is alliterated. Third, we're going to see a reconciliation of the divisions that once existed between Israel and Judah. Fourth, we're going to see the reinstatement of a king. And fifth, we're going to see a return to the land. Don't worry, we'll go through each one of those R's as we get deeper into the text. Let's start with the first one, God's promise of a future restoration of his people. Here in verse 10, this is where we're going to start, we see this rapid shift in focus. 
as we go from these words of judgment on Israel, mediated through the naming of those three children that, that Gomer gave birth to, now we have these words, verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 13 for some context here. Genesis 13. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you that we can't read Hosea or any of the minor prophets and the doom that those minor prophets were predicting for Israel given its state of disobedience without keeping in mind the promises that God made to Israel's patriarchs and specifically to Abraham, considering the land they would one day have, the people they would one day be, and the blessings they would one day obtain. For that matter, we can't read fairly the New Testament, the words of Jesus, the words of Paul, the words of Peter, the words of yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy given in the New Testament if we detach them entirely from the promises that God made first to his original covenant people, Israel. God made specific promises to a specific people, Israel. And those promises will one day be specifically fulfilled in and for that people, Israel. And it is hermeneutical malpractice to contend, as men like Andy Stanley do, that we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. To do so would be to turn a blind eye to God's original promises to Israel. Uh, To do so would be to wipe out the 39 books of inspired scripture from the canon, the Old Testament books. And it would actually undermine and demean the very character of God, who has told us that all scripture, ta grafe, in both the Old and New Testaments, it has been breathed out and given to us by God. I said turn to Genesis 13, right? Please turn to Genesis 13. And look at verse 16. These are God's words to Abram after he'd separated from Lot. These are words of promise. I will make your descendants, God says to Abram, as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. But that's just the start. God says something similar to Abraham in in, uh, chapter 15, just across the page. This is still Abram, uh, Genesis 15.5. Genesis 15.5, God takes Abram outside and says, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you were able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Let's keep going. Let's go over to Genesis chapter 22, where now God is speaking to Abraham. And this is right after Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac. Look at uh, Genesis 22. We'll start in verse 15. It says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies." Now, if we take these promises seriously, as we should, and if the people in Hosea's day took these promises seriously, as they should have, what we would or should understand and what they would have or should have understood was that God's threats of judgment on his people, in the immediate context, going back to Hosea, of Hosea's day, those threats of judgment against Hosea still had to be measured against and mediated through the antecedent or previous revelation that God had given them, specifically the promises that God had made to Abraham and the ways that he, God, would bless not only this people but the world through Israel. Yes, in the immediate context back in Hosea of 8th century Samaria, it may have seemed that God's promises to Abraham were in jeopardy on account of Israel's apostasy and that the looming judgment of God through his chosen instrument, Assyria, would really wipe Israel off the map. But in reality, those earlier promises from Genesis were never really in jeopardy of going unfulfilled. See, we see this surety, this certainty of God's promises all over previous revelation. In Genesis. But not only in Genesis, we see it in Isaiah. In fact, flip with me over to Isaiah chapter 10. Subsequent prophecy given by God through Isaiah after Abraham, around the same time of Hosea. Turn to 
Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses, start in verse 5. Here God, through Isaiah, is describing Assyria as the rod of his anger. And that means the instrument that God would use to bring judgment on his own people. The same Assyria that Hosea is concerned about. Uh, Look at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. It says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation. That's talking about Israel. And commission it against the people of my fury. What a description. To capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. What God is saying here is that he will, in his wisdom, use an evil agent, Assyria, to bring judgment on his people. The very judgment, by the way, that Hosea is warning about. But then look at what God says in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. Flip over to to verse 20. It says, Now in that day... The remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant with them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness." What we went through last week in Hosea chapter 1 verses 3 through 9 was unquestionably very dark, very sad, and very tragic. But was this the end of the promise? Was this the end of God's plan of salvation? Was this the end of the story, the end of the road, so to speak, for Israel? No, not at all. Though Israel was facing in Hosea's day destruction and deportation at the hands of the Assyrians, again, God had made these everlasting promises to Abraham, promises which he was not going to break. God has indicated here back in Isaiah 10 that a remnant would be preserved as a result of that same Assyrian deportation. And now going back to Hosea 1.10, we see Hosea the prophet now echoing these same truths. Again, verse 10, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. These words very clearly echo the promises made to Abraham. They echo the prophecy made in Isaiah. And what they're telling us is that while large swaths of Hosea's generation would be wiped out, a remnant would remain. And from that remnant, God would restore his people. So we've seen in verse 10 here, God promising this future restoration of his people when he says, the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. Next, God says, moving down through verse 10, and in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So we've seen, remember those R's at the beginning, that future restoration of his people. Now we're going to see a renewal of his promises, a renewal of his promises. Though it appeared that God was about to repudiate his children in judgment through the naming of those children, here we see him renewing, doubling down on the promises he had already made to his people. A refrain that had echoed down through Israel's history was that God was their God and they were his people. Exodus 6, verse 7, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. Leviticus twenty six twelve, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my, my people. And here, in Hosea 1, 10, that very refrain is once again being repeated. That very promise is again being renewed. And again, th- this should come as no surprise to us, because we cannot lose sight of the fact, as we work our way through the book of Hosea, that there's this golden thread that weaves itself throughout the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is that God is faithful. God is faithful. As the faithful God, he always keeps his promises. We could do a whole discourse tonight on the the concept and the truth of the the faithfulness of God, but I'm going to just rattle off a few here. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, 
His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Or Psalm 33, 4, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Or Psalm 36, 5, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Psalm 119, 90, your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Lamentations 3, 23, great is your faithfulness. 2 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, faithful is he who calls you. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. God is always and ever faithful. In our times and in Hosea's times, Israel was still his people and he was still their God. And note, the text says at the end of verse 10, they are the sons of the living God. The living God, El Hayim. We see that name for a God in a couple other places in Scripture. You could jot down Psalm 42, 1 and 2. Very familiar verse to many of you. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God, El Hayim. Or Psalm 84, 2. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God, El Hayim. The basic idea underlying this name, El Hayim, is that God has life in himself. He is the source of life for all created things on this planet. He's the source of physical life, the root of our spiritual life, and he's the hope of our eternal life. There'd be no existence without God. There'd be no meaning without God. There'd be no hope without God. He is the very root and source of life in each and every sense. Now, for the Israelites, it hardly would have been news to them that that God is alive, to call God El Hayim. But the point that's actually being made here in verse 10, in context, is clear. The God of Israel, the true God, the living God, was starkly in contrast to the dead idols of the surrounding nations, the very gods with whom Israel had been prostituting herself the gods that Israel had been adulterously joining herself to. Those gods that they were worshiping were deaf, they were dumb, and they were dead. That's actually picked up in Jeremiah chapter 10. If you'll go back with me to Jeremiah chapter 10, we're going to see the deafness, the dumbness, and the deadness of idols. Jeremiah is a prophet to the south. He's writing to Judah, but very similar context and also very similar time frame as what we're dealing with in Hosea. Let's pick it up in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 6. Jeremiah 10, verse 6, for this discourse on idols, false gods. Jeremiah 10, 6, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. All right, we're off to a good start. But look at what comes next in verses 8 and 9. But they are altogether stupid and foolish, speaking of the, the surrounding nations. In their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of a craftsman and of the hands of a goldsmith Violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men. And then drop down to verse 14. It says, Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of punishment, they will perish. And then verse 16. The portion of Jacob is not like these. For the maker of all is he, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. And what is this excerpt from Jeremiah 10 ultimately reminding us of? That the only God, Yahweh, the true God, was and is the living God. Now, as we turn back to Hosea, we get into some really interesting terrain in verse 11. Not that verse 10 isn't interesting, but look at what verse 11 says. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, 
Why would I use the word interesting to describe verse 11? I use that word intentionally because there are aspects of this passage which have yet to be fulfilled, which means that what we have here in Hosea 1.11 is unfulfilled prophecy, things that have yet to come to pass but will. Let's start with these words, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. Here what we see, and this is our third R, restoration of people, renewal of covenant promises. Three would be reconciliation of divisions between Israel and Judah. Here what we have is this reconciliation of the divisions between the north and the south. Now, from the time of King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and I realized two weeks ago I made a mistake when I said Rehoboam and Jeroboam were both sons of Solomon, I recant. I take that back. Jeroboam was not the son of Solomon. He was not Rehoboam's brother. He was the son of Nebat. I stand corrected. But the nation was divided between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And throughout this period of division, as we've seen, these two camps were often at war. So throughout this time, in this divided period, God's promise to have a people who would be his people continually begged the question, which people, which nation? is being referred to. Now, in verse 11, God promises here to gather together and reform as one people, his people. And when was this reunification going to take place? Many have taken the position and tried to argue that the reunification of Israel and Judah have already taken place, that it took place historically during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah following the decree of Cyrus when the Jews came back out of exile and were given permission to rebuild parts of Jerusalem. But that really doesn't fit. There are certain traces, admittedly, of at least some cohesion starting to form between north and south during the period of the divided kingdom. For instance, Hezekiah, a southern king, did make overtures to the northern tribes to join him at Jerusalem for his great Passover. We see that in Second Chronicles chapter 30. Josiah, another southern king, did include the whole land of Israel in his reforms. We see that in Second Chronicles 34 and 35. Ezra, following the return from the exile, offered 12 bulls for all of Israel, it says, when they got back to Jerusalem, when they started the sacrifices again. We see that in Ezra 8 verse 35. So there, is some, there are some shades of cohesion starting to form between north and south back in those days, but there is never total cohesion between Judah and Israel the way that Hosea 1.11 portrays it. There, there were signs of that old breach between south and north starting to heal, but that idea did not come to fruition. That prophecy was never fully fulfilled in the days of Hosea, or later even in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah or even later in the days of Jesus, right? We have to keep in mind that already by the time of our Lord's walk on this earth, his earthly ministry, there were already new roots of bitterness and hatred that had developed between Jews and Samaritans, who were known as half-breeds. That's, in fact, very much the tension that's built into that whole encounter with Jesus and the the woman at the well in John chapter 4. So, Because a total reunification of Judah and Israel had not yet occurred in Hosea's day, it leaves us with the reality that this is speaking to a future day. This reunification will be on a day to come, when Judah and Israel will be gathered together. And another reason we have to arrive at that conclusion is what comes next in verse 11. It says, not only will the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel be gathered together, but look what comes next. And they will appoint for themselves one leader. Putting these puzzle pieces together here from verse 11, what this is speaking of is a future day of unification for God's original people, Israel, now rejoined with Judah under one head, one ruler, one king. And that head is who? Who else? The once rejected Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ of God, the Son of God. So here in in this part of verse 11, This is our next R, number four. We see a reinstatement of a king. 
One reunited nation would require one king, and that one king would not be from any line, but from the line of David. And that one king would not be just any Davidic king, but the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Kings. By the way, this is not just me sort of casually opining on these matters. This is not me winging it up here. We actually are given direct insights from God's word about what is happening here in Hosea 1.11. God's word is always the greatest commentary on God's word, is it not? To prove it, come with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. And note the answers that we get in Ezekiel 37 to what is happening in Hosea 1.11. So remind you, Hosea 1.11 says, The sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader. Now look at what Ezekiel 37 says, starting in verse 15. This is going to be a long one. Bear with me. Ezekiel 37, 15 says, The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it, for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them for yourself, one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. When the sons of your people speak to you saying, will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah and make them one stick and they will be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. As in Hosea, Here in Ezekiel, we have a regathered Israel and Judah being predicted here. And we see this very familiar language that they will all collectively, Israel, Judah, be God's people and he will be their God. That sounds very familiar. That sounds very Hosea-like. But then look at what comes next in verse 24. It says, my servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I give to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever." This time of a restoration and unification of regathered Israel under a single shepherd or or a king from the line of David will occur when that Davidic king, the Messiah of Israel, the Christ of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns to this earth to usher in his millennial kingdom, a literal 1,000-year reign. And that restoration and that unification will happen on that day. It'll commence on that day when the Lord Jesus Christ sets his feet on the very place from which he ascended. That will happen, Zechariah 14, 4, on the Mount of Olives. And this future day will not only bring about a reunification of Israel and Judah, but it'll bring them under a singular kingship and rulership of Christ, which is exactly what Zechariah 14, 9 says. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. This, again, will be during the millennium, the 1,000-year period in which Christ reigns on the earth to demonstrate his glory, to vindicate his lordly claims, to demonstrate his kingship, and to physically set up his kingdom here on earth. And not only that, he'll do so to literally fulfill the prophetic promises of what was said about him in the Old Testament, including right here in Hosea. So we see that the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, verse 11. We see they'll appoint for themselves one leader, the Messiah. And next it says, 
they will go up from the land. That's not a separate event that's to be detached from what we've already seen in verse 11. Rather, it's in conjunction with the two other instances or incidents that we've already looked at, all associated with the future millennial kingship of Christ. And now the text here says they'll go up from the land, meaning the land of their captivity. And then it says in this related statement, and this ties everything together, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Here in this part of verse 11, we're seeing, and this is our fifth R, a return to the land, a return to the land. The people of God will be restored in the land. They will go up, it says, from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, we have to remember that while the name Jezreel had become synonymous by Hosea's day with bloodshed, that was not the literal meaning of his name, of Jezreel's name. Rather, the name literally means God sows, S-O-W-S. Now, at first, God sowed by scattering, by dispersing the Israelites, by sending them into captivity. But now what's being predicted is he's sowing them by planting them. So that Jezreel would no longer be associated or synonymous with bloodshed, but rather that name Jezreel would revert to its true meaning. God would plant his people in the land. He will sow his people in the land, reunified, no longer as Israel and Judah, but rather simply as Israel. And again, under that singular headship, that singular kingship of their Davidic Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In that era, they'll flourish, they'll be fruitful, they'll be planted in their land, they'll be sown in their land, and they'll be fruitful in that land. We see this elaborated on a little bit further in Hosea chapter 2. We're going to get to this passage probably not next week, but maybe in a week or two after. Look at Hosea 2, verses 21 and 22. This is referring to the same events. It says, It will come about in that day, Hosea 2, 21. That I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion, and I will say to those who are not my people, You are my people, and they will say, You are my God. This will be the true day of Jezreel. When the valley of Jezreel, the place that was known for blood being shed, the place that was known, Hosea 1.5, where Israel's bow was broken, instead becomes now the vineyard of the Lord, where the previously scattered people of Israel and Judah are now sown in the land of their fathers, never to be rooted up again. Last, for tonight, we see verse 1 of chapter 2. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama. Just as Jezreel would become a name of salvation, so Lo Ruhama and Lo Ami would become redemptive. Ruhama now becomes my loved one, and Ami becomes my people. And that change of names reflects a real change of status. We see in Scripture that a change of names can be negative. In Ruth, chapter 1, verse 20, Naomi becomes Mara, bitter, or bitterness. But a change of names can also become positive. Like in Genesis 17, when Abram becomes Abraham, the father of many nations. Or in Isaiah 62, verse 4, where, where Judah is no longer called forsaken or desolate, but becomes my delight, the Lord's delight. Or even in Matthew 16, verse 18, where, where Jesus says, you are Peter. Here in Hosea 2, verse 1, these name changes were intentional, and they reflect a God-directed act of grace and mercy, with the ever-faithful God revealed in the Bible saying, a day is coming where lo, meaning not, will be removed. And these very people, Israel, will be once again owned as my people, and again will receive my mercy. Again, that's looking forward to a future day. Not in the present church age, but in a future time, Romans eleven twenty seven, when all Israel shall be saved. Now, even if you've never read the book of Hosea, part of our passage for tonight 
likely sounds familiar to you. Because Paul references sections of this passage in a key part of the book of Romans. Romans 9 through 11 specifically, which covers God's dealings, past, present, and future, with Israel. In Hosea 1.10 through 2.1, as we've just seen, we see this stunning reversal of judgments that God was going to bring to pass on Israel, but then we see that he spares them and promises to restore them. That's what we've just looked at. Now, when you get to Romans 9 through 11, Paul is referring to Israel's rejection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, at his first coming, which was the latest and and most egregious act of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. It was, in fact, its supreme act of obstinacy and stubbornness and hard-heartedness and stiff-neckedness. That was the state of spiritual Israel in Paul's day and is still the state of spiritual Israel in our day. What Paul is then writing, and we don't have time to go there tonight, maybe in a different lesson, what Paul is writing about in Romans 9 through 11 squares perfectly with what Hosea wrote of 800 years prior. Both saw the unfaithfulness of Israel in their respective centuries, and both saw the mercy of God that would eventually be shown and blessed upon Israel. Just as Hosea's focus in Hosea 1.10 through 2.1 tonight was Israel, Paul's focus in Romans 9 through 11 was Israel. Just as Israel was apostate and adulterous in Hosea's day, Israel was apostate and adulterous in Paul's day and remains so in our day. Nevertheless, a future day of hope and restoration is coming for Israel. God has promised both through Hosea and Paul that those who have become not my people will again become my people. In fact, let's go to Romans 9 real quick. I just want to show you real quick what Paul does in bringing Hosea 1 into what he says. I couldn't resist. Romans 9, let's just look real quickly at verses 25 and 26. Romans 9, 25. As he, God, also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Paul's talking about Israel here. We don't need to allegorize or spiritualize what this is saying. He's talking about Israel. And God has promised also in Romans eleven twenty-five through 26 that there is coming a day when the fullness of Gentiles has come in that all Israel will be saved. The redemption of Israel will come and their current season of being stiff-necked and scattered will end. God will eventually bring them back into their own land and to their true Lord as sons of the living God. In the end, God will redeem his people. In the end, going back to our major theme of of the book of Hosea here, God is a faithful and covenant-keeping God. He has in no way reneged on his promises to Israel. You and I now sit in this parenthetical period of history known as the church age. And if you're here tonight as a follower of Jesus Christ, you already have been a great recipient, as I have been, of the redemptive love that we see God putting here on display in the book of Hosea toward Israel. And there's really no human category for the type of love that God demonstrates in this book, this book that we'll be studying for Sometime. That love will one day bring believing Israel back into fellowship with God. And that love is what brought you and I into fellowship with that God. And that love, that faithful covenant keeping love of God, doesn't stop even when, by definition, human definition, we think it should. This is divine redeeming love. God is and God has been faithful to people who don't love him back. He loves them even though they don't recognize his love, even though they turn their backs on him, even though they roll their eyes at him, even though they dismiss him. And just because we might think, well, I would never love somebody who doesn't love me back, well, that's not how God operates, as clearly seen here in the book of Hosea. We don't deserve his compassion. Humanly speaking, we shouldn't have been shown God's love, but we were. 
We are not his people by nature. We're meant for condemnation, but God set his love upon us anyway. And why? Well, because he did. That's the only reason for God's love and faithfulness to us. He loves us because he loves us. That's the answer. He loves us because he loves us. That was true of Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. He didn't select or choose or put his love on Israel because she was so great or she was better than all the nations. No, he loved her, that nation, because he loved her. And the same is true of Christians today. Ephesians 1.5 couldn't be more clear. He chooses us according to the kind intention of his will. Thank the Lord that the only basis for his love is his good pleasure, his kindness, his will. Because if there were any other reason rooted in us as to why we should be loved by that God, we would continually stumble and continually fall and ultimately be found unworthy of his love because we are, in our own right, unworthy. I'm going to close with a a quote from a, a helpful commentary on Hosea written by George Zemeck. He says this, Knowing what you and I deserve, in the light of the severity of our sin, who among us today could object if God were to choose to withhold any additional mercy? No one could legitimately accuse God of injustice if he were to declare that sinners like you and me had been officially disowned. If God were to pronounce that he no longer loved us, who among us could protest that we were somehow too lovable to ignore? The warnings in Hosea send a chill down the spine of any child of God who has an awareness of his own sinfulness and what he justly deserves from God's hand. The nature of God's temporary judgment of Israel's sin, as described in this chapter, Hosea 1, touches upon some of our greatest fears and doubts in the Christian life, that we might somehow one day sin beyond the limits of the grace of God and find ourselves disowned and rejected. And then I love this last line. Where would we be without important scriptural words like yet? Grammar matters. Let's pray. God, thank you so much again for your word. Thank you for the the sweet privilege that we've had today to sit under it, to learn from it, and, and in doing so, to know you and to learn more of you as you've revealed yourself in your word. Thank you that you are a faithful, covenant-keeping God, that you are a God who loves in a way that we can't understand. Uh, You you love us in a way that has nothing to do with us or our, our own sense of inherent goodness or worth but you love us according to the kind intention of your will. You have a a, a love that you've set upon Israel. Your promises are sure that you'll fulfill those promises to her, to that nation. And you've also made promises to us, uh, we Gentiles in the church age, that we know we can bank on and rest on and find hope in. So God, help us to, to leave this place this evening encouraged, refreshed, comforted, that we know you, a God who loves like this, forgives like this, has mercy like this, and is gracious like this. We love you and give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.